Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our program. We are in the midst of a program sharing with you about the spring feasts. We've already been talking extensively in our previous programs about Passover. We're also going to be talking about the holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're also going to talk about a, another holiday that's in the midst of that called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, we've been talking extensively about the Passover. We've been sharing with you the historical Passover, the memorial Passover that was commanded to be a memorial, the one that Yeshua kept with his disciples. And we're also talking about the Passover that we keep today, the Seder, the traditional Passover that we do. And in the last program, I got into following the Seder, the modern way we do it, where we follow a Haggadah. And let me just briefly mention to you, if you're interested in keeping Passover this year, maybe you've never done it before, Lionel Lane Ministries has a very interesting package for you. It's a video that actually shows a full Seder being done. It explains the elements of how to prepare your home for Passover, and it also has a copy of the Haggadah, which is the booklet that you follow for the order, the Seder, as you go through it. Now, as we left off on the last program, we were going through the sequence of the Seder, the traditional elements, and we had gotten to the midpoint. In other words, we had talked about the first two cups of the Seder, the cup of sanctification that separated the Passover from all other meals. We had talked about the cup of instruction, where we tell the ancient story to our children about how God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And we talk about the different judgments, and in fact, we brought it all the way up to the final judgment, which is what the Passover was, and that was the judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. Now, the children of Israel were spared because they took a lamb, and they slew it, and they took the blood of that lamb, they put it on the doorposts and the lintel of that, and when the angel of the Lord came over that night while they're in their homes eating the Passover Seder meal, he passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. But in those homes where the blood was not at, the firstborn of that house died that night. This was the tenth and final judgment that fell upon Egypt, and as a result, Pharaoh said, let them go, get out, go, go away. And so the children of Israel were essentially led away. And one of the things that we emphasized was this wasn't the salvation of Israel. This was the deliverance of the firstborn. And you're going to find out the significance of that in a little bit when we get down to talking about the feast of the first fruits. And there's going to be some things there that you're going to find very interesting for it. Now, I also mentioned to you in a traditional Seder that we observe today, there's the search for leaven that's done before we have the Passover to prepare the home for the Passover. And when we get to the Feast of Unleavened, we're going to talk a lot about, well, what exactly is leaven? And we also shared with you traditionally in a lot of Jewish homes, the firstborn of that house getting ready for the Passover in the house, they will many times fast the day before. Now, it makes for an interesting combination because in that first half of the Passover Seder, you're going to consume two cups of wine. 
you're going to have that cup of sanctification, you're going to have that cup of instruction before you have even any taste of matzah, and this is before the dinner, and so you can imagine if you're a firstborn and you're keeping this tradition and you have not eaten anything the day before, these first two cups of wine, you're going to be in the mood for dinner, and you're really going to be celebrating your freedom and your deliverance. Now, that was not intended. I don't believe God intended that whatsoever. That just happens to be one of the byproducts of enjoying a good Passover if, if you're a firstborn. And on a, on, on a couple of years that I was a firstborn, and on a couple of my years of keeping the Passover, I can tell you that I've enjoyed the, the Passover Seder very nicely. I didn't, didn't do anything inappropriate, but I did enjoy them, you know. And by the way, the Bible does say that wine is a joy to a man's heart. And so that's, I found out what that verse meant you know, in the course of that. Now, so we have this dinner, and we're at the midpoint of the Seder for us, and then we take up the Seder again when the meal is completed. And the first part of taking up the Seder, we come to this part after the dinner, which is entitled Zephon, and it is about that special piece of bread called the Afikomen. If you remember, I shared with you in the first part of the Seder, we have three pieces of matzah. Here's a box of matzah here. We take three of those pieces. That's called the unity. And as I shared with you before in, in the unity, the top piece is eaten by the father or the leader of the Passover. The second piece is the special piece we break. And we take the best part of that broken piece, we wrap it in a linen cloth, the father goes over and positions it in the house away from the table. We put a pillow on top of it. That pillow is called the stone. And so we effectively, we wrap it in a linen cloth and we bury it. And it will come forth after the meal. And so we're coming to the part of the meal when we're going to have that, that broken piece of matzah. It's going to come forth because we're going to be consuming that matzah now after we've had the dinner. We refer to that matzah as the dessert, the best part of the, of the Passover. However, there is this traditional game. And by the way, the Seder is full of these different traditions, but they all illustrate things and tell us things about the Passover. The game is played by the children. Once that afikoman is put there and the stone is put in its place, sometime during the eating of the meal, the children go over and they steal that piece of bread. They take out of its linen cloth and they go put it someplace else. And so when the father, after the meal, comes forth to this part of the Seder, one of the things that he is to do is to call for the afikoman to come forth. He's literally calling for the resurrection of the buried afikoman to come forth. It's the resurrection of the, of the bread. And when he dispatches them to go get it and to bring it back to the table, the traditional report is the children go and they come back and they say, the stone has been moved and all we found was this linen cloth, that they don't have the bread. Now, those words, 
if you go back to the New Testament and you look at the resurrection of Yeshua after the Passover, on the first day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, that's what happened to the disciples. There was a report that the stone had been moved and that his body wasn't there anymore. So the disciples all rushed to see what was going on. Peter and John and so forth went to the tomb, and sure enough, they all record in the Gospels that are talk about the, the resurrection that the stone was moved, that they didn't find the body of the Messiah, and all they found was the linen cloth. And so here you have this resurrection story that's in the New Testament. It was actually played out at the Passover the night before Yeshua was arrested and crucified. And the disciples saw this. He was actually giving them a forehand as to what they were going to experience they, when, when they would see his resurrection. And for us, when we participate in the Passover Seder, we see it illustrated just like what Yeshua said at the Passover when he took that special piece of bread. He took that third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. He took that bread, which is called the afikoman. And he held it up and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. And take, eat of it. And this cup is the blood of my life, of my testament to you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth my death, burial, and resurrection. Well, guess what you get to see in the Passover with this bread and this third cup? The death burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. As I have shared with some of my Christian friends, they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. And in fact, they have a little ceremony, which is a huge subset, a, a tiny subset, I should say, of the Passover, where they have a little piece of bread. It's usually unleavened bread, some kind of cracker, maybe an oyster cracker about size and they have this little sip of grape juice, and they hold that bread up, and they hold the cup up, and they repeat essentially what Yeshua said at the Passover. And you do remember the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. Well, the difference between what they do and what I'm talking about here is this in the Passover is a whole feast table. What they do, the elements are the crumbs that fall off that feast table, and what is spilled by the cup of that feast table. And I think, personally, I think if you're going to worship the Lord and God has invited you to come to the feast table to eat it with him, that I don't think you should be using a crumb and a sip to try to illustrate what God brought you, asked us to come and be a part of it. I would remind you, God commanded us to do this. This is a memorial that we were commanded to do. Yeshua himself kept this feast. He instructed his disciples to keep the feast. What happened? What happened from after the time of the resurrection of Yeshua and the apostles were formed up to where we get to this day in, in, in churches that believe in the Messiah? What, what was the change? How did we walk away from the feast and come to this little thing we call, this sacrament we call communion? Well, that's a lot of church history, folks. 
There's a lot of history about how the church fathers didn't want to be a part of any Jewish thing, and they separated themselves from anything to do with Israel and the Old Testament and so forth, and they decided to create their own traditions and their own customs to go with it. And today, the average Christian is following after the church fathers and the decisions they made, not because the Scripture called for it, not because God commanded to do it that way. It's just they decided to do it on their own. And so here we are. But going back to a traditional Seder, if you're eating the Seder, let me tell what else you get to do and be a part of. This bread comes out, and there's a blessing set over it, and it's broken and distributed so everybody can have some. Now, in most Seders that I've been a part of, they don't consume all of the afikoman. They take a small piece off and they pass it around. And sometimes there will be a pretty good-sized piece that still comes back around to the leader, the Seder. It, now, if you've got 30 or 40 people and you're taking half a piece of matzah, I doubt if you get much of it back. But most people don't have a Passover. They have a dozen, 15 people, and you will get a piece of the afikoman back. So what do you do with that? Well, there's another tradition that's done with it. The leftover afikoman, if there's any leftover, it too is now wrapped in a like a napkin, a clean napkin. It's wrapped up. The father then puts it, and it will remain for the next year, he puts it in the highest place of the house. And for me, I put it up on top of my buffet that's there in, in my house. And it stays there for a year. And when the next Passover comes, that's when it comes back down. Now, at this point, we discard it because it has remained there, and we have new afikoman that we have at the Passover. And that's a cycle. Now, what that illustrates is this afikoman bread that we eat representing his death, burial, and resurrection, we get to see after the resurrection a piece of that bread. Are you ready? To ascend to the highest place. You get ready to see the ascension of the Lord back to his father. And we actually illustrate that. And we say of the afikoman, where is the afikoman that we didn't eat? Oh, it ascended. It ascended. And that's what happened to Yeshua. What happened to him after he ascended to the Father? So that's another interesting piece that's done traditionally with this. Now, as I said, this is also taken with a cup. And out of the four cups of the Passover, we're now at the third cup. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And as you would expect, that symbolizes the, it symbolizes the Messiah and his life given to us. When the Jews from the house of Judah went into Babylonian captivity, this is way back in the biblical history, and they were in Babylonia, they couldn't keep the Passover. And so they were, you know, because they weren't in the land of Israel, they couldn't slay the lamb, so forth. And they were very perplexed because we can't observe the commandment because we're at the hands of our enemies, the Babylonians. And it was at that time, it's credited now. You don't, have, you don't see this in written textual form. This is a tradition within the Jewish people. It is credited that the prophet Ezekiel 
who was a prophet that was in Babylonian captivity, instructed the children of Israel that the cup now, the third cup, represents the blood of the Lamb. So that when they would eat the Passover thereafter, they would take that cup. It was synonymous with the blood of the Lamb. So here's Yeshua saying to his disciples that night at the Passover, holding that cup up, and he said, this is my blood. Who is he? He's the Lamb of God. This is the blood of the Lamb. And and that didn't come as a shock to them whatsoever. And by the way, as the story goes out amongst the, the faithful, that didn't come as a new concept. They already understood the cup was supposed to represent the blood of the Lamb. It was made perfect sense to them. It was common to them. And that shows you how that tradition came alongside of the Scripture and the commandment and how it was developed. A lot of people in the faith, they very strongly holding to Scripture, which, by the way, is a good thing to do. They will sometimes, every time they hear something that's different than what they've heard before and maybe what their parents taught them or they saw observed in their community, they'll take this attitude, well, if you can't show me the verse in the Bible that says that, I'm not, I'm not going for that. And sometimes when I talk about traditions and customs of Moses, they'll say, oh, yeah, that, we're not doing that because that, that's, not, that's not written in the Scripture. Well, that's a baloney argument. Because the fact of the matter is that God has authorized us to not only have commandments that we keep, but to establish traditions and to establish customs. And in fact, the great accusation that was made against Stephen, the first martyr of the faith, was that he, he, it was being, he was being accused that he was teaching that Jesus came to do away with the law of Moses, the temple service, and the customs of Moses. And the customs of Moses, some of the things that we're talking about here that are attributed to that, right along with the temple service, right along with the scripture, have the same spiritual power and force of instruction to us for righteousness. It's not limited to exactly what is said in the Bible. We are living people. We serve a living God. And this was the initial instruction that got us started. I can tell you right now that in the Torah, there's only five sacrifices specified in the Levitical books, about five sacrifices for the temple service. How many different sacrifices was actually in the temple service? Thirteen. Thirteen different sacrifices that was actually in the temple service. And there's things in the temple service... Moses never instructed Aaron to do. Aaron and his sons were given the authority to flesh out the whole rest of the temple service for all of the holidays. And so, for example, as other customs or traditions came in, such as Hanukkah and Purim, these things came later to Israel as a result of historical things that took place they wanted to memorialize, remember those as the history. Moses didn't live in those days. That's the reason why Moses didn't talk about them. But other saints lived in those days, and they're the ones that carried it out. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that Christians will complain sometimes when they hear about some of these traditions and customs and say, oh, I don't want to be a part of that. 
It's not biblical. My goodness, you do not want to sit down and have a conversation with me about what the church fathers have done that you follow. I guarantee you, you follow all kinds of customs and so forth that Yeshua never spoke about or the apostles ever spoke about. You know, you go through and look at the liturgy of the church and, and you say, oh, that's great, but some of this other liturgy that originates from Scripture that has done, been done for millennia compared to what the church has done, you poo-poo. Let me just drop this whole thing by saying the following. There's nothing wrong with following the traditions and customs that are associated with the Lord as long as they don't interfere with one of his commandments. Yeshua's complaint against the traditions of men was that they were replacing the commandments of God. You pervert the traditions of men to the commandments of God. That's the rub. That's the problem. It's not that you have a tradition. It's not that you have a custom. You, you, every family, you can have your own customs. It's not offensive to the Lord. It's just the way you're enjoying your life, and that's what those things are for. It's to renew and be able to teach your children and establish an order in your home and to have enjoyment. And I, I bet I could go to every one of you right now and say, tell me about one of the customs of your home, and you'd relay on this thing that not everybody else does it, but I saw that you enjoyed it and your kids liked it, and, and it was fun. Is it contrary to God? No, it's not contrary to God. Now, if it was set up to be at odds with one of his commandments, now we got a problem. Take the case, let me just go one step further this. Let's take the case of the guy who says, well, I don't have to keep Sabbath. I make every day the Sabbath. Okay, you know, is, is, there, is there something wrong with worshiping God on Sunday? No, there is nothing wrong with worshiping God on Sunday. How about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? No, you can worship God on any day you want. Where the rub comes in is if you say, well, I worship God on Sunday, but not on Saturday. I'm going to be opposed to the Sabbath that God commanded. I'll set up my own Sabbath. I would remind everybody the Sabbath belongs to God. And in particular, it belongs directly to the Messiah. He's referred to as the Lord of the Sabbath. So if you want to set up your own Sabbath and substitute that for the Lord of the Sabbath— you go ahead and take your chances with God about how well you think you'll get away with that. That's part of becoming mature in the faith, brethren. <clears throat> we are instructed to learn the commandments, to honor traditions and customs where appropriate, and there's nothing wrong with us observing them. Most believers are going to say, well, what we do here in the Seder is custom and it's tradition." <clears throat> there are elements of this that that's very true. A lot of these customs and traditions was actually done by Yeshua with his disciples at what you call the Last Supper. Now, for me, that's always been a deciding point. As a Jewish believer, I've seen where the rabbis have said certain things and instructed certain things to be done. So one of the things I've asked 
well, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not trying to just try to follow Jewish custom. I'm trying to believe in the God of Israel. Now, there may be some of those customs that are consistent with me worshiping and following the God of Israel. How do I sort those out? How do I know which one is a rabbinical thing versus a thing that really has to do with God? Here's the answer. What did Yeshua do? Remember that little t-shirt, what would Jesus do? What, what would Yeshua do? Do we have evidence in the scripture that Yeshua actually did this? And when you find that he did, that's a pretty green light to me that I can participate in that too. Take the case of Hanukkah. Holiday it happens usually in December. Feast of Dedication. This is a historical event. It's a nationalistic holiday for Israel when they reestablished, rededicated the altar after the Greeks had desecrated it. Did you know in John chapter 10, it says that Yeshua was in the temple on Hanukkah? He was there at the Feast of Dedication, and he taught there. It's right there in the New Testament. It says that's where he was at, and that's what he was doing. You know what? I don't care if it is a nationalistic holiday. The Lord was there at the temple. He was doing it too. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what Yeshua did. That is a clear dividing line for me. By the way, this entire Seder here, Yeshua did it. The Messiah, our Messiah, did this. So I don't have any hesitation about doing this at all because it's completely consistent with my faith in him and his instruction. All right, enough preaching. Let's continue on with what the Seder had to say. We have the Afikoman, we have the cup of redemption. Wonderful, great, we're completing the Seder. We only have one cup left, which is called the cup of praise in the Passover. Tilt, no, actually we don't. We have two more cups. Now, I told you the Passover is four cups. Yes, it is. But you've got to understand us Jews, there's always an exception. And that's just the way we are. And so the next cup is not the cup of praise. There's another cup that's in there that's part of the tradition. And it's called the cup of Elijah. Now, when we have that cup at the Vesader, it's, a, it's a, a little bit unique cup. It's not such a large cup. It's usually a smaller cup than the normal goblet cup. And it sets on a little tiny saucer. The other cup just is, has its pedestal. It sits on. But this cup is smaller, and it sets on a saucer. And when we cup to the, come to the cup of Elijah, the leader of the Passover is going to now fill that cup. And the idea is he is to fill it to the very brim of the cup. I mean, to the point that it looks like the cup is definitely about to spill over, that if you touch that cup, it'll spill over. He's to fill it up as much as he can to make the cup as irresistible as he possibly can. As soon as they get the cup filled, the leader of the Passover would then instruct the children to then go to the door of the house where the Passover is being kept and ask them to open the door, look out into the dark of the night, and call for Elijah to come. And this can be kind of a, a fun thing when, when you see this happen because the kid is like, you want me to do what? Yes, I want you to go to the door, open the front door, look out into the dark of the night, and call out for Elijah. And, of course, they'll go to the door. They're kind of looking. They don't understand what's going on. And they'll go, Elijah, 
you know. And I said, no, no, you got to cry out loud. Call. He may be down the block. Call for him so he'll come. And you get this kid out in the front yard of your house on the pasture yelling at the top of his lung, Elijah, Elijah. You know, I'm sure the neighbors are going, what is going on over there? And anyways, Elijah doesn't show up, so the kid comes back in. So the deal is, well, if Elijah didn't come to drink the cup, I, the father, get to have the cup. So that's another reason why I fill it to the brim. So I don't drink four cups at the Passover. As the father and leader of the Passover, I get to have five cups of wine at the Passover. I'm part of the joy of the festival. Amen? Let me explain to you why we have that. It's based on a prophecy in Malachi. See, Malachi said that before the great and day of the Lord, that Elijah would be coming back. And Elijah would be coming back to reunite the fathers with the children. And here we are at the Passover, and as a father, I'm supposed to be instructing my son, my children, in the Passover. And so Elijah, being part of the combination of fathers and sons, is that's part of the prophecy of him. But there's another part to it. You see, the whole Passover is actually a giant prophecy. Historically, it's all about the children of Israel and how they were delivered and brought out of Egypt. But the prophets go on to say there's a day coming after Israel is scattered in the nations. There's a day coming when there's going to be an even greater exodus, and the children of Israel will be coming out of the nations all at the same time, and they will be coming back to the promised land, and they'll be led by Messiah King when he goes to establish his kingdom. And one holiday in particular is associated with that, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when Messiah King will be on the earth with us for that. Tabernacles, by the way, is the Feast of Ingathering, the gathering of saints from all of the lands and nations and so forth. But the question is, when exactly will that happen? I mean, you know, that's a process. The Exodus, you know, had a very specific start point as they started their journey. When is the start point for the greater Exodus when that will come at the end of the ages? What, what's the start point for it? I'm going to show you how the Holy Spirit works. Maybe Passover? That's when it started in the ancient Egypt. And he says there's going to be another exodus. I, I wonder if it will start at Passover again. I wonder if in the last generation they're eating the Passover and suddenly that becomes the signal they're going to now start the greater exodus. What would be the signal that we'd be looking for that that particular Passover is the Passover that we're supposed to go? The cup of Elijah. See, Elijah has been prophesied to come before it. And when we eat a Passover and we suddenly discover we think Elijah is in the world with us, this could be the Passover we leave. That's the signal as to which Passover is the start of the greater exodus. It's when that kid goes out and we all realize, wait a minute, Elijah is in the world. When should we be looking for Elijah in the world? What is it that we'll see that will tell us is that? Well, that's the prophecy of the two witnesses that's in the book of Revelation. 
that at the start of the great tribulation, there are to be two witnesses that stand either side of the cold altar that started the great trib, and they'll begin to prophesy the judgments upon the world and the Antichrist associated with the great tribulation. And our exodus occurs in the great tribulation. So do we know the great tribulation has started? Do we know this is the Passover we're supposed to escape and start on the great, greater exodus? The answer is, is Elijah in the world? And when we come to this point in the Passover, we set up Elijah's cup and say, is Elijah in the world? So it turns out that that little tradition there is profoundly important to us as a part, not of the ancient Passover, but the future Passover that will start the greater exodus. All right. Now, the other cup that we have, the final cup, is called the cup of praise. And this is a cup that is associated with being in the kingdom. Now, it would follow that if the Messiah has come and done the work of redemption, and we know the Messiah is getting ready to come again, Elijah comes into the world, we know the Messiah is coming back, we're getting ready for the cup of praise. We're going to be with the Messiah and the kingdom. Amen. Praise God. This is a reason to celebrate. And that's looking to the future of the Passover and what it means to us. Now, something very interesting happened at the, the Seder that the Messiah had with the disciples. When it came to this point to drink this cup, guess what Yeshua said? I will not drink of this cup until we are in the kingdom together. We drink the cup today in anticipation but Yeshua, from the Passover, the last Passover he kept with us, he didn't drink this cup. He said, I'll drink that cup when all of this is done, all of this is completed, and you and I are in the kingdom together. And when we have the Passover there, I will then drink that cup with you. So it is a, a tremendous thing for us to look forward to and anticipate. And again, as I shared with you before, Keeping the traditional Passover Seder, to me, all four cups, the cup of Elijah, all the broken bread, the bread coming forth in the resurrection, all of these elements, this is, this is the most Christian thing I've ever done, if I could use that term. But in truth of fact, this is the commandment. This is the commandment of God that he gave to all people who believe in the Messiah. This is a feast of redemption. The redeemed are the ones who eat this feast. So the final thing as we come together at the end of the Passover, there's a series of psalms, and they include Psalms 113, 114, all the way up to Psalms 118. And these are the psalms of, uh, that we pray and that we enjoy with that final cup. And some of these songs are really, really interesting when you think in context of the Passover. And a lot of people read these psalms. They have no idea they have anything to do with Passover. Let me, let me read these psalms to you because it's pretty significant as to what is the meaning in them. Psalms 113 says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Can you imagine singing that in the kingdom? 
From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house of a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Remember I told you about you've been invited to the table with the Lord? Through the Passover, you've been invited to take a seat along with the princes of the Lord. And you are treated as one of the princes of the Lord. You see, it's the important people who sit at the banquet table. Remember? You're an important person to the Lord. He invites you to come to the table. Psalms 114. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from the people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea stopped and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. All of this psalm is recounting the ancient Exodus. That ancient Exodus got started because of the ancient Passover. So they have a psalm that reviews that. Then we come to Psalms 118, and this is the one that really penetrates me about it being used with the Passover. Psalms 118, let me just read verses 22 through 24. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We know that the Lord ate the Passover and then was immediately rejected by the leaders of Israel. The stone that was rejected by the leaders has become the chief cornerstone. And a chief cornerstone, the name of it in the Hebrew is Rosh Pinah, the head stone, the head cornerstone. And that's a symbol of the Messiah because when it comes to the house of the Lord, He's the chief cornerstone of the house. And we build that house with him off, off of the, the regimen, off of the control of the chief cornerstone. But here's the part that really gets me about that psalm. And by the way, the scripture, the New Testament says that when they left the upper room, they all sang a hymn together. It says that. Which hymn did they sing? This one. This is the one they sang. Now, here's Yeshua. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows that he's getting ready to leave the upper room. They're going to go over the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to be awake, and he's going to be praying to God, can this cup be passed? Because he knows what he's facing. He's, he's going to die. That's the day he's going to die. The disciples are still not quite figuring this out. Now, they've heard Yeshua say, hey, i got to go away for a while. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be betrayed. They heard all that, but they couldn't quite put it all together. So they go over to the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and Yeshua knows what's going to happen. Now, stop and think for a moment. Knowing what was going to happen, what he was going to face in the course of the next 18 hours until he died, he sang this song with his disciples. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That was the day he was going to give his life for us. And he rejoiced before God with the disciples that that day had come. We definitely have a reason to rejoice that on that day, that the, on a, a definite reason to rejoice the Passover because that is the day the Messiah gave his life for us. Now, let me just add one more point to this. Okay, so we in the faith, we say the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, that's important to us. In particular, Yeshua, while we're yet sinners, dying for us, him being the payment for sin. Okay, we got that's all important stuff to us. Why wouldn't we celebrate the day that he died? Why wouldn't we do that? Why is it we think it's more than satisfactory to take a piece of cracker and a sip of juice, forget all that other stuff, we'll go ahead and celebrate the resurrection? And we'll use, by the way, Easter eggs and bunnies to do it with. I'm, I'm really missing that. I, I don't quite understand the logic. It seems to me what Yeshua had to go through for me, it seems to me that I should honor him on that day. He paid the price. I'm very glad that he was, he was resurrected. Don't misunderstand me. I absolutely welcome it, rejoice. But for me... The day he died for me is very important to me in my faith. When I eat the Passover, that's what I do. I remember the day that Yeshua gave his life up for me. If that's not sufficient reason for you to want to keep the Passover, learn how to do it, I don't know what is. If that's not important to you, well, then I guess the Passover is not important to you, and I'm just wasting my breath. But it seems to me if that is important to you, maybe you should pay a little closer attention to the Passover, and maybe you should keep the Passover and observe it. All right, this concludes our part of the presentation about Passover. In the next program, we're going to shift to a next feast, which is going to be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I'll be sharing with you what the commandment is for it and what it is that we do and what does it mean and signify for us as a memorial commandment. Until then... Shabbat Shalom. I hope you're getting ready for Passover this year.